welcome to Chats, the television podcast, season 14, The Chatsovers. On this season of Chats, our fun little TV book club is going to be covering the HBO drama, The Leftovers. My name is Alan, and I'm joined as always by a man who definitely won't ask me to defecate on him for the podcast. It's Magellan. Well, now I won't. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome. If you you can't already tell, folks, most of the cold opens really only work if you've watched the episode. They're really weird out of context. That's the gag. I'm over here explaining jokes like I'm freaking Carlos Mencia or something. Uh, Hi. Welcome, everybody. I just want to invite everyone to the space where we, we talk about our little TV show that we watch in the corner here. Uh, and go really deep in on the themes and the jokes and the weird parts and the interesting parts. And we're watching one of my favorite shows, The Leftovers. It's me and Magellan. Magellan, hi. Hey, how you doing? Good. Do you like my uh, my my shaking up of the intro, like a little salt shaker tonight? I I love I love it when you shake it up like a little salt shaker. <laughs> <laughs> Resisting urge to delete the podcast. Uh, <laughs> No, I would never. We have to keep it in for realism. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. What's new in your life this week? What's something big that you did this week that you want to share with the class? <laughs> I watched these two episodes of The Leftovers. Oh. I felt like a pretty big life event to me. It was. It was pretty. I feel like overall we all we all felt it was big. And I hope yeah. that folks are watching at home along with us because we're going to be talking about The Leftovers here uh, in depth. So first up is season two, episode three, Off Ramp. We're also going to be talking about season two, episode four, Orange Sticker. Orange Sticker. Off Ramp was written by Damon Lindelof and Patrick Somerville, who would go on to create the acclaimed HBO drama Station Eleven, adaptation of a book. And I'm uh, personally a huge fan of Station Eleven. So this is Patrick Somerville's first directing gig on this show, or rather writing gig, excuse me. Um, the episode aired October 18th, 2015, and it was directed by Carl Franklin. I had to confirm the direct, the air date because I had the wrong air dates. It's fine. October 18th, Magellan, what happened in Off Ramp? In this episode, Lori and Tom's work to rescue lost souls takes a toll on them. Lori tries to spread the word about the dangers of the guilty remnant. Tom's infiltration of the cult uncovers new problems. Oh, oh. It's a Lori and Tom episode. What a blessing. What a delight. Who would have expected this one, huh? I know. I loved it. I thought this was a fantastic episode. I think it reels you in with a personal story. And, you know, I I had texted you when I finished. I was towards the end of the second one. And I said, you know, I love watching Leftovers. It's so, like, restorative, you know. And you said it's very refreshing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's just, like, sometimes when the world the real world is like stressful and chaotic and scary. It's nice to know that there are people in TV shows feeling it too and being like, uh, this made sense in my head. Why doesn't it make sense in the world anymore? Ah, the world is not, it doesn't follow any sort of hard rules or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I felt that a lot with Lori's plot, especially in this episode. Yeah. Um, where she's coming back to her, uh, her, her like therapy profession, her therapist profession, and realizing that like she cannot just be the one gr- person who runs a group that uh, deconverts or uh, deprograms members of the guilty remnant, um, because it doesn't exactly work like that. So um, we're pulled in into a very interesting plot about all of that. 
Um, first off, we have another, it's another character-focused episode, like you said, Lori Anton, the combo. Uh, and this episode puts us back right before last week, uh, right before the Garvey-centric episode, uh, episode two. Um, did you... Once you once you were into it, what was your what was your first vibe seeing Laurie and Tom again? Did you were you excited to see them? Were you worried about like because I know you had some questions about like where is Laurie after the end the events of season one? Uh, were you satisfied by the answers to that? Yeah, I really enjoyed this. Um, you know, I think it's a, a the kind of thing where there's like some piece of connective tissue that maybe I I wish I had seen, but that I don't actually need to be there of how does Lori get from, you know, the, the finale of season one to this moment, but it kind of explains itself. Um, and I think we're in a really interesting position here. I like Tom and Lori being together, um, because I think both of them had interesting stories in season one, um, but felt isolated from the rest of the cast or at least the rest of their family. And so it's nice to see the two of them, structuring a family of their own and and trying to build something um yeah and i i I don't know i just i really am enjoying the situation that they're finding themselves in uh and i think it's a way to continue to explore groups and themes and questions from season one without rehashing character beats or uh you know giving tom and laurie like forward momentum but still holding their trauma and the things that they're working through uh from from the first season yeah i um i think chris silka and amy brenneman do a great job of like feeling feeling you see the growth between last season and this one Uh um these are characters who are not you're not this is not your first time seeing them and they're very aware of that the show is uh and i think it's like the success of the script that it still feels very personal and human even though like we don't person we don't ourselves the viewer know of uh like um people who take people out of cults ostensibly you know what i mean like this is not a situation that's that's quotidian that you see every day but right. it feels realistic right. and it feels grounded because of their two performances especially that yeah. you're like yeah here is the bureaucracy and the tedium and the frustration of trying to pull people out of a cult um yeah. and what that tangibly means uh so we can talk about that. So there was, you know, opening first and last shots of the episode, always so important. Very, like, sexy sort of shot um, coming out of the uh-huh. car and doing the power walk. Yeah, it's like a freaking car commercial or something. With some nice jazz. This like jazz. Ford is so clean. Oh, yeah. Built for tough. 0% APR financing. <laughs> it's like, am I watching TV? Hello? Yeah. And the reveal, uh, God the yeah you picked up on why this was happening yeah the reveal of why this is part of Lori's routine oh man i didn't even get it until i saw your notes and i was like wait (laughs) it's for people just to explain on a regular basis Lori goes to nearby guilty remnant compounds sees people in the street revs the engine and runs like drives him into them on purpose to see if they'll jump out of the way and then she has to clean her car off when she runs people over. Because there's a non-zero chance that they're not going to run away. They don't, most of them, she says, don't run away. They don't jump out of the all way. Of, I think she said like all, none all of, them of them jump out of the way. Yeah. Oh, so then, yeah, it's routine. It's just like you're playing GTA. You're getting points. It's so bleak. God. Yeah. And it's also like she's a murderer. You know, she's just a murderer yeah. now. 
Yeah, I don't know if they're getting killed or what, but they're certainly like <laughs> dirtying her car hood in some way. Yeah. She's yeah. causing grievous injury to multiple people. Yeah. Including her son, in a way. You know, she's kind of forcing right. Right. Um, this awful task on Tom of getting infiltrating different guilty remnant compounds across the state, across the country, whatever, uh, and trying to deprogram from within and pull people out into these uh, into this sort of uh, community that she's starting to form in the second floor of a commercial building, um, which, by the way, is owned by uh, her landlord, Victor, who mm. is just the most like mustache twirling landlord. Yeah, I mean, a lab, if that's yeah. the thing that people say, it is uh, except for except for my landlord, who's great. Yeah, um, your landlord seems really nice. My landlord, um, my parents. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, kudos to the leftovers for the landlord representation here. Just like the shittiest guy. Ever. I think there's a tiny effort to make him seem human. Almost, almost when uh, you know he's talking to her and she's downstairs and he's like, "Oh, you know, you owe me more," and she's like, "I'm gonna get it to you," and he's like, "Yeah, I mean, what's the line about the poops?" Did you he, says, right he says, he uh, says, because he's catching on that there are people staying in the building. And he says, these toilets, they can handle day poops, not night poops. Like, it just not trying at all to really explain the situation. Nope. He's just like, give me money so that I won't, like, kick you out. I, I can get more money out of you for this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The pipes don't work differently at <laughs> different times of day. Like, right. Uh, so he's just he's doing that for the sake of it. The part where it is does become a lab uh, is that he's like, oh, what do you got over there? You got bagels? She's like, yeah, I got bagels. He's like, let me see that. And he fucking takes a bagel. Like, what? <laughs> Cartoon hmm. bad man. Um, really appreciated that they just like leaned into that and didn't try to be like, oh, but he's because when we went to his house, I thought that was going to be the moment where they're like, oh, look, like his wife hates him or something. Um, right. But no, his wife um, is talking on the phone. Uh, because basically what happens is Lori is under pressure from this landlord uh, to pay him extra and pay rent because he's realizing that she's not only doing work, writing her book about her time in the guilty remnant in this uh, complex, but also is housing former members of the guilty remnant there um, in the meantime, until they can go back to their homes, if they still have them. And so he realizes that and he's like, I'm not paying. You're not paying for like people to stay here. You're paying for commercial space. That's like, living in a we work basically <laughs> so you can't do that uh and you need to get out of here and uh this escalates to the point where he um like the guilty remnant try coming in several times um and we're gonna go back and talk about susan she's sort of the other like guilty remnant yeah. point here yeah but uh just about victor he does eventually kick them out unceremoniously leaves all their stuff on the freaking sidewalk awful mm. except in uh conspicuously Lori's laptop where she has mm -hmm. the one copy of her book that's not saved anywhere in the year of yeah. our Lord 2015. Right. And Tom's like, you didn't email it to yourself, which is not the best solution, but I guess it's a solution. <laughs> like Google Drive exists in 2015. I try to think if Google Drive didn't exist and you had like a document that you were writing, where did you save it? Because I was in drive. before. Yeah. Save true. it to a thumb drive. Easy. <laughs> like to, yeah. Yeah. I remember. But we, yeah, we, we were in college in 2015 and we were Googling it, Google driving it. We were Google driving. I think early in college, though, I wasn't like super familiar with the Google suite. So I was like, I was thumb driving. True. 
Yeah. I remember having a thumb drive I got from a, a Best Buy that used to be near Fenway. It's not there anymore. And it's an 8 gig. Oh. I still have it. It's right here, actually. Here's the thumb drive. Um, and I would put documents on How much did it cost? Sorry. I just want to know gig. if it really was the Best Buy. <laughs> 8 gigs. I think it was about $10 in 2012. Oof. Yeah. Oh, that's over a dollar a gig. I mean, they're more now. They're not less, you know. Space. An eight gig thumb drive is more than ten dollars now. Hold on, eight GB thumb. No way. I'll look this up while we keep talking. Um, on Amazon. Oh, sorry. This is an eight gig for five dollars. Okay, maybe. Yeah, I ain't no way off. a gig is worth a dollar. Maybe it was less. I, mean, I don't remember. Again, this was literally a decade ago. I can get fifteen free gigs by making free gigs at gmail dot com, and now I have fifteen <laughs> free gigs. <laughs> Space is at space is at an inflated premium. It doesn't need to be at a premium like online st- uh-huh. st- storage store space, but they choose to do that because of money. Anyways, she doesn't back her stuff up. She's worried about losing this laptop. He he's like, I can't tell you that I took it because then I'm uh, culpable. She naturally, Lori's like a little unhinged this episode, um, for good reason. Breaks into um his home, uh, sees his wife on the phone, gets worried. Runs, uh, sneaks upstairs, sees his her, his son doing some like hardcore gaming on the laptop, which you can tell it's hers because it has the little Buddha sticker on the back. I love that she has the Mac sticker. Like it's it's 2015, so this tracks. Um, having the sticker on the back of your MacBook, and she just yanks it from him, and then the wife is like, "Who the fuck are you? What did you do to my house?" <laughs> she just leaves. Oh, I loved that. And then just following her into the like book meeting was amazing. I want to talk about that. Um. But before we jump to all of that, I do want to go back to the aforementioned character, Susan, um, who is, again, the, the sort of center of what our, our viewer perspective on, like, the Guilty Remnant deprogramming stuff is. Mm-hmm. Um, so Susan's an, uh, a uh, middle-aged woman um, who we identified usually by her, like, yellow shirt after she gets out of the Guilty Remnant. She doesn't talk for a while. She starts questioning Lori. Lori is trying to, like, ingratiate her out and get her out of the, the Remnant this seems like a to her like a really important, useful um, expenditure of time and energy for Lori. Is like I might as well get other people out if I learned that it was not so good. Um, I'm curious because you had asked, I think, in your notes, like why did Lori leave the Guilty Remnant at the end of the season? I want to talk about that a little bit because I feel like yeah. it's not obvious why exactly, right? Because nothing they didn't right. do anything. Well, they did. Well. I, I think, you know, what I said before about wanting a, a piece of connective tissue is really part of the design of the episode. Like, it, it's it's a bit on the nose when we get to the publisher meeting at the end and they're like, but how do you feel about it, Lori? What are your feelings? Uh, like, that scene is great and also dumb um, because it's just so meta. Yeah. But arguably too meta. Yeah, perhaps too meta. Um, and also, like, <laughs> it felt like I was listening to our podcast <laughs> a <Exactly>. little bit. <laughs> exactly. Just people being like, so what was your motivation behind that? I really loved that moment where you, like, you know, yelled Jill. And I, like, literally heard myself going, like, I love the moment she yelled Jill. And it's like, oh, God, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, th- but that is, like, part of the reason we don't know why Lori left is because she hasn't taken the time to reflect on that for herself and she's not being honest with herself. Like the, the failure that she experiences here with Susan 
partly it's just like you can't save everybody um you can't turn somebody around in a day or a week but also partly she's just not honest with herself and not able to be honest with susan like when susan starts talking again and they have this exchange in their group meeting where uh let's see what is the exchange um susan's talking about how she's worried that her husband her husband's like are you going to come home and she's worried that he's angry with her Lori's like oh he's not angry he just wants you to come home susan says yeah but he's angry too like you and then Lori goes i'm not angry and susan says okay and Moves we, on. See, it's like, uh-huh. <laughs> we see all this evidence in this episode that Lori is so angry. Like she is exactly. exploding all over the place and has not been honest with herself about why about the effect that being in the guilty remnant has had on her. She was like in a leadership position in her cell by the end of season one. Um, and so part of the Lori and Tom story didn't mean for that to rhyme, but here we are. <laughs> um, part of the Lori and Tom story is the two of them unraveling their respective cult experiences yeah. together um, and figuring out how to like get away from those things. Cause then you have Tom who's kind of like, ah, the guilty remnant make, make sense, mom. I don't know. I'm, prone to wanting to be in a thing like this um so i don't even remember your question but i feel like <laughs> i responded to it <laughs> that's that's how it goes sometimes conversations are fluid yeah. you know um but yeah i think i, I want to like dedicate a little bit of time to tom because um some of the things that occurred to tom in this episode are like heavy to the point where i'm gonna consider putting yeah. a content warning on this one yeah 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 you know um and it's like he's in his own situation but yeah, I agree with you that they're both very disillusioned and trying to be leaders to the disillusioned, which is right. like inherently not going to work. Because it's like, well, like you said, she is still angry. It exactly mimics the moment in episode nine when episode nine of season one, where Patty, her patient, was like, you're, you know, you're worried. You're feeling something inside of you, aren't you? And she's like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not. And it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Where now Susan is like, you're angry. You're doing this because you're mad at the guilty remnant and you right. hate that they exist. And she's like, no, like, whatever. They're fine. And it's like, you would like them to end. You want, you've, you've like mm-hmm. grievously injured a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. And I think um, the way and, that this episode explores, yeah, good. Oh, just to kind of close the loop on, I remembered that we were talking about Susan. Um, the the what ends up happening with Susan is Lori brings her home and reassures her husband, like, look, she's not going to want to leave again. She had a bad time with the guilty remnant. Here she is, and Lori is not a, kind of thinking about the thing that they, that Tom says later, which is we can strip this thing away from them, but we can't put anything in its place, and so we're like returning people to essentially these hollowed out empty lives and Susan ends up killing herself and her family um, when driving them um, because she just doesn't want to live this, this life that she has now. Um, And what we realize by the end of the episode is like, you know, if you want to 
be a part of people's healing process, you can't like you can't think of yourself as just sort of a an abstraction or like a an uh, objective third party. Like you have to be yourself in that work, and that's something that Laurie realizes by the end of the episode, which I think is a really interesting, messy, difficult, but it feels like a necessary. truthful necessary conclusion for her and tom to reach yeah the the susan stuff yeah. is so important and i think maybe could have even come earlier because it's almost a parallel to meg too it's like what would have happened mm. if meg had stayed with that guy that her fiance yeah. where yeah um one of my favorite um clips from the show spongebob is uh so squidward they're like beleaguered neighbor patrick and spongebob's beleaguered neighbor uh moves out one day uh, to a community like a gated community that's all other people like him like other squidwards and at first he's like this is the greatest experience ever i'm so happy to be here i can like play my clarinet and i can go take classes and i can go live in my nice house and the montage is like him doing that 10 times and his eyes slowly glazing over as he realizes that he does he wanted the challenge of living with neighbors who like you know brush against him and not just like being comfortable all the time and I think that's Susan, and then that's also uh, uh, Meg to an extent before she left. He's like, these other people in my life aren't acknowledging it. Like, I'm listening to my husband. This is part where we're focusing on Susan and the husband's in the background of the scene, like, complaining about some work thing. And she's like, uh-huh. And you, she just stops responding after a certain point because, like, why does any of this matter, dude? Why do you? Why can you pretend this is normal? The whole thing that the Guilty Remnant gave us was a sense that, yeah, that that did matter. And I want you to understand that that mattered every day of your damn life. And to to deprogram for that from that is super scary. And, you know, in a way, you can almost see from a mile coming that Susan's not going to make it because she's kind of thrown into it. You know, they, they talk about gradually letting them out and letting them see their family and letting them talk to them and agreeing, like, sitting her down with the husband and Lori and being like, hey, she's going to want to sleep on the floor for a while. Don't think that that's too weird. She doesn't hate you. Make She has to promise to stay. That's the thing. That's the moment, right? When Lori's like, Susan, I need you to promise that you're going to stay with your husband. Don't leave your husband because you need, like, someone to ground you. And she nods. And it's like that's the thing that probably started to push her over the edge was not only mm -hmm. do I have to stick to society, but I have to stick to this one guy who I barely know now with a kid who I barely know. Like, I'm trapped in another life now, uh, the way that people think that that folks are trapped in the Guilty Remnant. So I thought it was really well done, even though it's like it's watching a slow-motion car crash that ends in a literal car crash, uh, the whole story of Susan. So I, I really appreciated that, and I wish uh, people who dropped off of Season 1 would continue from this point because you get to see what leaving the Guilty Remnant actually looked like. And I'm sure she's not the only one of these, you know, because they're a, it's a really difficult like ethos to get out of. Right. Right. So I liked all that stuff. Or I found it all really powerful. And then even just like the small little symbolic moments for Lori, like we do eventually see her go with Tom to the diner where he meets Jill and she sits in the car. Mm -hmm. Tom's oh, diner. Well, Tom's diner. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. She sees something on the window and can't get it off. And I kind of love the symbolism. Of... Sorry, it's the same. It's the same diner. Oh, okay. Tom, Tom's um, diner from the song and Tom's restaurant from the same restaurant. Oh, okay. Yes. Good, good. 
Sorry, she sees a little thing on like a little black smudge on the outside of the car window and she keeps trying to get mm-hmm. it off and then he comes right. back and she stops and that's just a moment of like I'm tr- I'm picking at the thing and it's not going away I'm picking at the thing I'm trying to get it off and make it make the hurt go away and it won't it's like mm-hmm. you know a good little bit of visual storytelling that I mm-hmm. I got a kick out of yeah um, also what a kick to see this diner scene from Lori's perspective right yeah yeah where she's like oh, I'm so excited to go be in Jill's vicinity. Can you give me this? Can you give her this letter? And Tom's like, sure. And then she's like, do you give Jill the letter? And he's like, yeah. yeah he's not great. lying. He gave her the letter. <laughs> yeah. But just this like kind of ignorant bliss that not maybe not bliss, but the seeing the kind of lack of information from Lori's perspective is an interesting way to do um a similar type of storytelling to what we saw from episodes one to two, where we were given additional information from the Garvey perspective, but now to see the information that's just straight up lacking from Lori's perspective, and there's not like something we didn't know. It's just we didn't realize what she doesn't know. Um, right. I thought that was a cool, uh, like dramatic irony kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, I think that does bring us to Tom, though. I think that covers everybody else. So yeah, worried. I think so. Let's talk uh, about Tom. Yeah. There's a lot of musical cues in this episode that I didn't love. Um, one of which is early on with Tom when he is uh, getting rejected from various Guilty Remnant chapters that he's trying to deconvert uh, or infiltrate. We hear a piano version of Where Is My Mind? And it's like, guys, you did this last week. It's getting less cool every single time you do it. This is the most on-the-nose possible song you could have used. I was so annoyed. The musical cues <laughs> across both episodes were not good. <laughs> Someone uh, needs to be talked to. Where are you at, by the way? Speaking of music, where are you at with the theme song? Um, In episode three, I was like, all right, I'll watch it. And in episode four, I was like, this is pretty good. Okay. <laughs> Every like time I listen now. to it now, I just hear you when I showed it to you going, Oh, this is so long. <laughs> I, just, like, I want to skip it, even though I don't think it's long myself. It's two verses. I liked it but. now. I think I think what I like about it now is the show is so, so bleak and raw. And it's just like, and yeah, I'm singing a song and we're singing a song. It's like a nice little corn uh, and little sweet peas. <laughs> You're like, yeah. yeah. Thank I think it's cheeky in a dark breathe. way that, exactly it is a little bit and a little bit oxygenated like the nice visuals you know they're at the beach they're like experiencing summer and stuff um i i I like the humor of it i love the like they're all going to come back as carrots and little sweet peas i think that's really funny in the way that the leftovers is funny and whoever picked that song is really smart because it feels catered for the show um but yeah no the where's my mind one i didn't think was great and Tom's goal in this episode is to be Lori's kind of go-between to the various uh, Guilty Remnant compounds, and he infiltrates by joining and then finds people who seem like they are not doing well and asks them Mm -hmm. if they're doing okay, Mm -hmm. uh, even though he knows they're not, and then kind of leads them to this private community of people where they're allowed to talk again, and the deprogramming process begins with group therapy sessions led by Lori. Um, And at first, Mm -hmm. he seems like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm figuring it out. And if you're paying attention, if you, again, you've been watching since season one, these are like evolving characters. Tom is doing the Wayne thing again. He's like mm-hmm. exactly doing it again. Right. And he he realizes it. This time it only took him one episode to realize it instead of like half the season. 
where he's like, Mom, mm-hmm. like they some of them like being there. I think he has the line, right. uh, they're giving them something that they need or whatever. Yeah. Um, which is that they're giving them like a sense of community and also like they are the only people who are talking who are um accepting what happened and trying to like put a lens on it instead of just go past it. Yeah, well, and he has this line after all the stuff that happens to him that we'll talk about where he says to Laura, you forgot what it's like. They make sense. They know something. Right. They know something. Spooky. Very spooky. What do they know exactly? Speaking of people knowing things, just a little side note. Um, After Tom brings one of them back and he's clearly distressed. We get a little clip in the news again. It says that a dead man named David Burton woke up from the dead, woke up from death in Australia, and they don't know why he, how he mysteriously came back to life. This is actually where Date Kevin Senior is going, and it's where the guy from the Watchtower and Miracle gave Michael a letter to send to. So, this David Burton guy in Australia has got something going on that they're mm-hmm. seeding really slowly. Um, mm-hmm. That's something. But yeah, then he does the whole diners thing, um, and he goes to one of the compounds and doesn't get accepted. They realize very quickly because a woman blows the whistle at him. I, I like the the comedy of like the people when they got the whistles from Kevin in season one never use them, but they do use them to <laughs> to like uh, you know red flag people who seem like they're bad actors like Tom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he gets captured, and then this is where it gets really rough, guys. And I'm so curious how we feel about all of this. Um, this was all a trap for him, uh, left by the new leader of the Guilty Remnant, Meg, huh. the new Patty, who uh, locks him in the back of a truck, ties his hands up, and proceeds to rape Tom. Wow. The leftovers. What are you saying here, guys? She then throws him out of the truck with his pangus and his pours gasoline on him, lights a cigarette, and you're like, are we literally going to kill Tom right now? Instead, she lights a cigarette and tells him, tell your mom Meg says hello, and they leave him in the middle of the road with his pants off. Mm. Uh, which, you know, is a lot, man. I mm-hmm. I think sexual assault scenes, regardless of the gender dynamics at play, are so, so, so difficult to use effectively in a show. Because it often oh, just goes yeah. into the extreme level, you know? I, I've i almost never been like, yeah, that one felt appropriate. It's so rare. And if it is, it's like it's because they understand it's a systemic issue, not this, which is like yeah. an evil woman is going to do this to you when you don't expect it. Like, that's not unfor- like, that's not how generally these things happen in real life. Yeah, it also just, you know, the way that these things are gendered where it feels like the show felt more license to linger in this scene because a woman doing it to a man yeah which is not okay (laughs) so i don't know like this is a situation where i always have to take stock of okay am i uncomfortable because this is uncomfortable or Or am am i uncomfortable because this is too much right and like is this appropriate for the story or what and i think where i land with it is um i don't know Uh, like i'm not particularly invested in this idea of like 
Meg is a supervillain now. Like, I am intrigued by the Guilty Remnant being this sort of loose, like, quasi-anarchistic organization where they have this set of ideas that continues to persist and we're exploring them and exploring how they, like, control their members. Um, and I, I don't... I don't know that I'm interested in seeing Meg like rise to power or something. And I don't think I know her well enough to like understand why that's happening or what that means. And it feels inappropriate to me to use this sort of an event to communicate like you should be scared of Meg, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. And maybe they're going to like, explore the effect that this has had on Tom further later. Maybe it's part of where he arrives at by the end of the episode. I don't know, but the connective tissue isn't really there between his experience and what happens with him later in order for me to feel like this was appropriate or justified, but I'm willing to be, you know, convinced that I'm wrong on that. That's just my feeling about it coming out of this episode. I'm definitely not the person who's going to convince you that this is this was worth it. I think that yeah, let's look at let's look at the writing perspective of this. Okay. Somerville and Lindelof are like we need to show people that Meg's in charge now. How do we do that in one scene? We have like a 5-minute scene to show this. Okay. She could be if we show her killing someone then we then viewers are going to say, "Oh, this is so extreme. How are we supposed to trust the guilty remnant now?" Okay, well then we have to we have to show her dominating somebody who's a young person that she can do that to who's like vulnerable. But we have Tom and we have this like power play going on. Like I understand the A to B to C that gets you there, but I think that this is definitely too extreme. And like it tells us the viewer that Meg is in charge now, um, without just her explicitly saying, Hi, I'm Meg, the new leader of the Guilty Remnant, and I replaced Patty. But like, what is it what was she trying to communicate to Tom? Just like don't fuck with us because we'll do awful things to you. We control you. I guess. Yeah, okay. I guess. Right. I don't know. Throw him on I mean, the I... side of the road and throw gasoline on him. That was enough. You didn't have to do the first part. <laughs> like. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like uh, there's there's something like really disorienting and in that way controlling about the sort of like intimacy that she like creates an illusion of in that moment that throws him off and i can i can see the function that that serves if you're like this cult leader who's trying to get people to dissociate from reality and like just be not sure of themselves or their bodies or whatever like there's a world in which it makes sense that a character like Meg might do something like that to Tom to exert a certain kind of control over him. But like they're, they're not explaining that and they're not exploring that in a way that I think supports that analysis. I think they're just sort of doing it for the sake of like, Oh fuck, what just happened? Um, yeah. Yeah. And You've said this before about, like, the nudity and the violence on the show, but it is also an HBO thing. I mean, this is 2015. Right. 
So Game of Thrones is like in the conversation and has also also featured. He also does stuff like this, right? Frequently and very poorly, like way worse. And so I've like looked at articles at the time where like, uh, you know, on Vanity Fair, they like interviewed the creators and like had Alan Zabawal on on like a roundtable talking about the scene. And he compared it to Game of Thrones and the creators were like, we didn't want it to be like that. We wanted this to show that she was like in control and in power, but we're not trying to like titillate people. Um, mm. What I think they need to do to stick the landing beyond the scene, though, is show how Tom is traumatized by this because it's a deeply, deeply traumatizing event. And if we brush it over and we just say, like, OK, that was weird. Tom feels really vulnerable now. Then, like, you are failing to portray victims of sexual assault. Um, yeah. You are just showing us a non-consensual sex scene at that point, which, like, that's not what this is. So, I mean, it's worse than that. I mean, so yeah. I, I, you know, in the final, like, therapy scene, you start to see a little bit of crack in Tom's armor of, like, I'm scared. They're there. Why are they, you know, why are we losing and all of that stuff? But uh, I don't think in this episode we really get the result of all of this other than the disillusionment is complete uh, with, with Lori's whole situation. Because after what Meg did, he's like, uh, we don't, we're not in control anymore. We're not doing enough. Um, so let's, um, let's pivot from that. Let's yeah. talk about the rest of the episode. So big scene. Um, super uncomfortable, but for different reasons. Lori gets to meet with a publisher for her book, which she's been writing on that laptop. Didn't save it, but she got the laptop back. She, uh-huh. she sent it. Um, they invite her into this like t- this group talk about her book, and it's one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the show because, like you said, it is a bunch of people picking apart a real woman's life and saying things like, you know, I love the symbolism of this, and you're going to be the next what's next. Um, I think the button, the best part of the scene is just the line, you know what's next, right? Because what Lori's hearing is, you know what's coming up. You, like the guilty remnant, are right. thinking about the next thing. But he's saying, you know the book, what's next? Which is the one that the yeah. guy in the hotel in uh, in uh, Guest wrote. Right, right. Um, mm-hmm. And then they just start asking her, like, what we've been wanting for so long, which is like, can you, why did the guilty remnant, like, what? so why are they smoking all those cigarettes, though? And she's like, they never told us. And he's like, yeah, but like make up a reason. <laughs> Basically, it's like they had a thing, right? Like he says Christians have like God and the fear of death and all of that stuff. Doesn't the guilty room have something for the whole cigarette situation? I think there's even a meta- like the meta-ness comes from people trying to analyze the show, but also people trying to ask the, the showrunners for answers and being like, can you can you actually explain like everything about these people and why they do what they do? And what I think this, this scene's trying to show us is like being in the guilty remnant doesn't mean you get the answers. There's no like secret answer key that Meg and Lori and Patty all had that we don't get to see. They just don't know it explicitly. The best, the closest thing we got, I think was Patty talking to Kevin in the cabin in, uh, in K- in Cairo. But like these people don't know. They just joined because it felt it's like, it works for you. Um, and I love this scene because you feel the discomfort in Lori, like the way her insides are squirming around because they are describing her, like I said, her actual, actual life uh, before she leaps on the guy and attempts to choke him out. Uh, yeah, that was that was kind of awesome. <laughs> Gotta be cath- honest. Cathartic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you feel about this scene? Um, I, I think it is incredibly well edited. I think that's like the triumph of this scene. I think on the page, it's 
kind of dorky because uh-huh. they're recapping season one and like we were talking about before. Um, but the I think across the board, this episode is edited incredibly well um, from the beginning where we're cutting between Lori's routine and the like driving music of it and um, the sort of I think we're cutting to Tom with the guilty remnant doing his thing. And it's like these moments of quiet. Yeah. Um, And yeah, the way that this scene builds to that fever pitch moment of Lori jumping on the guy and you're with her and you are like, yeah, ah, get that guy. Get him. Um, Is, is pretty great. And uh, you know, again, I think for as sort of, corny as it can be to have people analyze the show that you're watching they raise good questions of like well you know why why did you leave how do you feel about this what do you want how do you view these things that Lori's not answering for herself um and i think that's kind of a season two theme or question overall right is like because we have the garvey family you know, in, in, uh, Jarden now. Yeah. And Nora is not asking herself really, why did I just drop $3 million on this house? Like there are things that we're doing. We're moving forward with a new normal. Um, and we're acting like the, the old normal isn't still with us. Um, so I think it's a, a useful kind of thesis statement for season two. Um, that I think is executed really well from a cinematography and an editing perspective, even if the writing is like, come on guys. <laughs> yeah. It's um, did you ever see the matrix four? The four yes. of the newest one? Uh-huh. Yeah. We did a podcast yeah. about it. For our oh Patreon. my God. We totally did. Fuck. Whoops. <laughs> we do a lot. We do a lot. Y'all. Yeah. Um, you're on that scene towards the beginning where they're asking Neo, like they're trying to pitch the matrix game and they're like, so what with the symbolism is like, is it a trans narrative or like, what's I think it's all about cool guns and suits yeah, and slow it motion. Felt, felt kind of like that. Same same vibe where he's like, it's it was my life. I did that. <laughs> what yeah, do you mean? Right, but this right. is obviously way more serious and not as tug in cheek. Um, yeah, I th- I think this is a really cool, interesting like third act of the episode. Is is Laurie having so much enthusiasm about this book and how she feels genuinely that like if I can get this book out into the world then all of this will be worth it. Everything I did to my son and everything I did with these people I'm deprogramming will be worth it because more people will know. And uh, it doesn't seem like it's working out that way anymore, certainly. Mm-hmm. Final scene, the last group therapy scene that these people seem like they're going to have for a little while. Uh, mm-hmm. Initially, Tom asks, uh, or Lori asks about the guilty remnant. Why are we losing? As if this is a competition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when Tom says the line that at least the remnant is giving people something. And then Tom admits this like really fascinating little detail about how he saw Wayne one more time before he left that whole situation. And Wayne gave him a final hug and supposedly gave him his power uh, to remove people's pain. How did you read this? Did this seem legitimate to you? So I took it at face value when I first watched the episode. Um, Cause Lori shares a story with them that we know to be true. She still doesn't tell them everything that we saw in the flashback episode from the Garvey's at their best. Um, so like she's not being totally transparent, 
but she's telling a version of her story that is truthful. And Tom also shares a version of his story that we know to be full of factual information about Wayne and Christine and his journey in season one, uh, which we can verify because we saw it happen. And then he shares this thing that we didn't see happen. And when I was watching the episode, I was like, oh, that's weird. All right. They kept that close to the chest. I guess he met with Wayne and got Wayne's powers. But when we were starting to record, suddenly something in my brain was like, was Tom lying? Wait, hold on. What the heck? And are Lori and Tom like starting, you know, we get this. Well, because one of the recurring images that we get uh, of Lori's routine is that she has this glass bowl full of Nicorette gum. Yeah. That's like going down slowly. She has to keep refilling it. And, it's almost like Tom and Lori are creating the like Nicorette gum of cults, mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes sense, mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, we'll give them like a little taste of there's some worldview or thing that makes sense that they can put stock in and we'll tell them that we're hugging their pain away. And from there, we'll kind of slowly continue to ease them off of uh you know, this sort of thing that they were having fulfilled by their involvement with the guilty remnant. Um, so now I think Tom is lying um, and he doesn't have Wayne powers, but maybe he does. I don't know. And maybe I'm supposed to not know. I don't remember. I told you I didn't even remember this plot at all happening when we <laughs> were right. called season two, which right. is weird to think about. That might just be because because it's only in like this episode and maybe another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, until it smushes into the main plot again. But uh, yeah, I think I can't like spend too much time considering the question of does Tom have power now? What's the use of that? What I mm-hmm. what I do care about with Tom's arc, though, is is he finally finding the control in his life that he desperately needs? Because right. he has spent his entire life, like his entire adult life, even pre-departure, following other people's um, rigid routines for him going to college and then being disillusioned by college, joining Wayne and being disillusioned by Wayne, joining his mom and being disillusioned by his mom. And in all of these things being like, I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to do what's good and it's going to feel good to me. And it never works out for him. So he's tired of being disillusioned and wants to be the guy who does the thing instead of doing it for someone else. Um, And so maybe him having the powers is like, I finally, I can be a good version of Wayne or something. But also... Yeah, he could just be full of beans as well. Wayne may still have been full of beans. It's entirely possible. I like that read of it. Um, that's all I have on the episode, though. That's the final moment as we uh, pan out to some nice music, uh, as usual. He says, who wants a hug? And then Jesus, I'm calling by Tangled Eye Plays, which is a good song. Hmm, straight notes before we move on? He does a little Jesus pose also in case you... He does. In case it wasn't subtle. In case you thought it was subtle. Yeah. I don't think... I I found it interesting that when he goes to a guilty random place, one of the first things they say is, your pain doesn't matter. Like, they write that to him, to Tom. Yeah. Um, And it's also interesting to me that he, to try to get people out, he always asks, are you okay? Uh, right. which feels like a question that Tom has nev- never been able to answer truthfully. Um, and so it's some it's something to see him 
asking that of other people and helping them when he yeah. can't accept that help. We've seen him unable to accept that help from from other characters. It's it's momentum for him, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple quick ones. Okay. Uh, I also noted that Lori is going to need a lot of Nicorette if she's going to try and get everybody to quit their mm-hmm. habits. Mm-hmm. Nicorette is very expensive. From working in a pharmacy, that's like one of the most expensive single items you can buy, which really? sucks because it shouldn't. You can get a prescription for it, but you can also just buy it over the counter, and it's, ex- it's uh, pricey. Well. Yeah, and so are like the patches. Oh my god, yeah, mm-hmm. it's a racket. Uh, I had mentioned that the piano version of Where My Mi- Where Is My Mind was bad. I mentioned the David Burton thing. Little tiny line here. Um, when Victor is like harassing Lori about the rent and then yeah. talking about how he doesn't, he has her laptop or maybe he says, I don't have it. She barely, the Amy Brenneman is such a good actress. She gets out the line. She's amazing. I can't start over uh, talking about her book, but also not talking about her book. Right. Yeah. Like I can't unpack all of that stuff again. Yeah. I cannot, yeah. and I can't undo the guilty remnant, and I can't do undo my family. Right, right. I, there's, I gotta keep moving forward and have momentum and drive through people because, oh god, mm, thinking uh-huh. about what I've done is gonna break me in half. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I thought that was all really good stuff. That's all I had though. Yeah, those are my experience. It's a good, it's a great episode. I, I wrote this joke down. I have to read it. But in the opening sequence, I wrote Laurie's writing her screenplay while listening to the Birdman soundtrack. I could never write it down. Did we talk about how Tom is falling asleep to Holy Wayne compilations? To compilations on YouTube? Yeah. (laughs) Like his early moments. Strange. But it that would that supports like he does actually have Wayne powers and he's like, How do I become Holy Wayne? How do I do it? What's the thing he does? Uh, Yeah. So adds to the ambiguity of like Yeah. And also raises the question of like Tom coming into using those powers, is that him self-directing his life or is he still kind of following other people's expectations, even coming into that power? Something to Absolutely. track as the season goes on. Yeah, I'm curious about Tom. I didn't think I liked him that much. Yeah. Uh or I would I or I would like him this much, but now I'm like, oh man, I hope Tom's doing well. Or just what's going on with him. Um is that what we have for this one? Yes indeed. Groovy. We'll be right back after a brief musical break to discuss Orange Sticker. Welcome back to the chats overs the second episode we watched this week was season two episode four of the leftovers entitled orange sticker it was written by damon littleoff and tom speciali speciali i'm not sure spez- i would say speciali speciali uh let us know tom and it was directed by tom shankland it aired on october 25th 2015 alan what happened in orange sticker this on a very spooky episode of The Leftovers, <laughs> October 25th. Nora awakens in the midst of an earthquake to find Kevin missing, and the Murphys are left reeling after Evie's disappearance. I don't think I updated that summary after last week's preview summary. I usually try to like fill them in a little bit more, uh, but we were on a time schedule, and that still covers what happens in the episode. Nora worries about Kevin, 
Kevin uh, and meets up with John, and also Jill and Michael are having a thing, and I'm not a fan of it. That's all. That's that's the part that's like spooky Halloween because there's nothing spookier what? than teen romance. Sorry, go ahead. Let's talk about Jill and Michael first. Why why does it bother you so much? It's so predictable. It's just yeah. going. I I love what I loved about it towards the very end. The last scene of the two of them was where it becomes clear that Jill is like. Okay, I like that Michael is very principled and good looking and helpful, but she doesn't like understand that what's keeping him away from her is religion. Like he is a very, very religious person and doesn't approve right. of like atheism specifically. Yeah. And so it, it in her mind it's like, oh, this like dirt dorky kid is just like not understanding that I'm clearly trying to get with him. And for him, it's like, dear, dear Lord, Father, please forgive me because she's showing me leg and I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> like he, he totally knows and he just doesn't. Well, he's not re, uh, responding. Um, so I like that like comedy aspect of it, that it's just like these two people can't be together right now. But I still think that they're just going to put them together regardless. If they do some shit like like Jill converts in the next episode or whatever, I'm, I might be done. That's like as a Christian. I don't need to see people be uh, like that, be trying to convert to get with a guy. I think that's really weird and uncomfortable, actually. That's how I feel about it. I feel like we're not going to see that. We're just going to see more moments like the one at the end of the episode where he says, are you alone? And then he says, me too. And then he starts crying. We're just going to yeah. see them cry together a lot, probably. I love that. Now you're saying yeah, things I want. I, I'm down for that. That that sounds good. I also, um, I just think of the top five characters in this season that I care about, they're really banging, barely hanging on. And I don't, that's why I'm like, okay, can we just please get, I'll take more Nora and Kevin any day of the week. Do we need any of this Jill, Michael stuff? But also if you don't, then Michael's not a character. This is all Michael gets, you know? Like at least Jill gets to like sit on the porch with Nora and drink and talk about uh, they're they're uh, talking about Kevin. We need to talk mm -hmm. about Kevin again. But like Michael has <laughs> Michael has nothing outside of this plot line. So yeah, I, I guess that he has the the Watchtower guy. But that's we don't know when that's going to blow up. Yeah. Did you catch the Watchtower guy? I think that was in this episode. It must have been because there was no miracle in the first episode. Uh, towards the end, Kevin's talking to Patty, and the Watchtower guy yeah, goes, he says, "Hey, who's your friend?" Yeah. Awesome. Love that. Very yeah. much into that. Also, my last note on Michael and Jill was that when she asks him to fix the pipes, first of all, my brain's dirty. So I was like, you know, fix pipes, et cetera, et cetera. And then also I heard him in my head go, I can fix that because I <laughs> have no taste whatsoever. <laughs> we did just do a commentary of holes for our Patreon. Yeah. Patreon.com slash chat spot. Bing. Yeah. What's up with Nora and Kevin, though? Yeah, what's kinky. going on with our lovely couple? Kinky, kinky, let's get... Well, that's just the handcuffs part's very sexy and also tender and also controlling because Nora's worried about Kevin's disappearances. Um, we follow her during the earthquake here. It's like we've seen this earthquake from every single character's perspective now. It's really interesting how we've gotten like all the different people. Um, mm. And what's so scary about Nora's version of it is she doesn't have any information. She calls Kevin. His, he doesn't answer his phone. Uh, they say that the daughters are gone, and her heart drops. And we get this incredible scene early on where she calls 911, and all she can say is, did it happen again? 
And they're like, ma'am, can you speak up? And she's like, did it happen? A bunch of people disappeared. Did the thing happen? You would know if it happened, right? And then Kevin just shows up at the door and you're like, because she really did believe for a minute. And that's what a lot of this episode yeah. is about is, is like, oh, God, is it happening again? What does it look like when it happens again? How do we mm-hmm. react? So people, we kind of get like a little taste of all of that for people, which I, I enjoyed a lot. Yeah. And it's interesting to watch Nora in this episode. Like she kind of keeps a lot of this close to the chest throughout the whole episode. She faints at the beginning and then she kind of collapses into Kevin's arms when he shows up. And then from that scene forward, she's very reserved and it's like hard to read how she's feeling. Um, But she's super worried about a sudden departure happening again. And so it makes sense that where we get to at the end of the episode is she says to Kevin, like, I can't wake up like that again. Yeah. We're in this together. Like I am cuffing myself to you. Uh, And I'm really curious to see where this goes. And it's just, I don't know. It's cool to see their version of like radically accepting each other and like deeply committing to each other where (laughs) she's like, Okay, so you were here. I don't think you murdered those girls. Uh, Pretend like you found your phone today. And he's like, wow, that's a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) You're really good, you sneaky lady. (laughs) I love that so much. Mm -hmm. Just get get yourself a partner like Nora Durst (laughs) who can be totally ride or die um, just in every possible context. It's, even, it's awesome. Even at your worst when you're like asking, like you've had a bad time. So she goes and buys you alcohol and cigarettes. She goes yeah. to the supermarket and then she sees the old man who we learned is named Virgil and he Virgil. pays for her stuff. Yeah. Uh, Virgil. All right, guys, enough nail on the head. We get it. Religious al- allegory, Dante. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, But this episode is heavy handed in more than a few ways, mainly the music. should we talk uh, about that now just to get it out of the way yeah patty starts her first appearance she's singing in the pit that where kevin's looking for the girls she goes you just start hearing and you're like is that is that never gonna give you up by rick astley yeah is patty rick rolling us right now why (laughs) what's happening was rick rolling rick rolling was old in 2015 fam come on fam fam Fam. That's I mean, we know Kevin is a big fan of memes. True, he's into Neon Castle. This is his brain doing that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, the way I said from there is specific. This is so esoteric, but I want to tell people. Uh, SNL, Drake, was on for Canadian Jeopardy. So he played uh-huh. a very, like a Canadian parody of himself. And they're like, the joke I never forget, because it's just such a funny delivery, is they're like, name a, name a famous rapper. And he goes, Cardinal mm. Official. And they're like, that's like some <laughs> random guy from the middle of Canada. And he goes, come and that's like that's just i love that i think it was probably around this time maybe in like 2016 actually but yeah anyways Mm -hmm. she's Mm -hmm. buying stuff for him patty's singing rick astley you think that's the end of the rick astley stuff but then oh the episode concludes with a um really tender acoustic version of um never gonna give you up no no it's the song from greece Oh, wait, wait, wait. You're the one that I want? Yeah. Oh, even... Dude. It's so dumb. <laughs> I yeah. hated it. I hated it, too. 
the fact it's that like, I forgot. You better shape up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you <laughs> need a man. And it's like the only part that kind of made sense was the first few lines. And it feels like they let the lyrics go on just a little too long. And it suddenly doesn't make sense anymore because in the Grease song, there's all these characters who are singing these different parts. It, uh, I did not. I did not like it. Low Fangs, you're the one that I want, has 11.4 million views on uh, YouTube. People like that version. It's corny. It's really corny, guys. It's super corny. The, just the, the needle drops of this. I was that That's the one that I, I posted in our Discord. Like, you're going to hear the most bananas needle drop uh, in S3, S2, E4. Yeah. It, it's not on the level of, like, Newsroom Fix You, but it's not not on that level. It's, it's like, it's, in the top 10 comfortably of worst chats needle drops if not top five the difference is that fix you is it's on the nose but it's a the it's the original song this is a like dark cover of an 80s or whatever 70s i don't know when yeah like they're trying to like make it cool and and it precedes what's now like the most common thing in every action movie trailer where they take an old upbeat song and make it like acoustic and downbeat because that's cool as fuck and i hate that trend so much it's in so many movie trailers um i cringed i gotta say that i did yeah. like the guy in the watchtower seeing patty though but that's um yeah that's the music stuff can we just talk about kevin and john real quick because i like this plot yeah let's do it okay so john's creepy i watched this episode in fits and spurts and every time i came back to it i was like john's still being creepy yes he is uh he sees kevin digging for something in the hole and is unsure what he's looking for and he he like picks him up in his car Kevin's like, oh, I mean, no, I mean, my girlfriend was going to pick me up. And he's like, I'm actually going to pick you up. Kevin's ostensibly being kidnapped here, right? He's just like, you know, in, in like a friendly way. Um, but he doesn't know where they're going. He's like, my home's that way. And the guy's like, I know. <laughs> and hmm. John's just like, well, I'm taking you somewhere else. Um, and he takes him to the guy's house, uh, whose name we really should just, we should really look this up. Isaac. He takes him to Isaac's house. And you're like, didn't Isaac already get beat up? What's going on? But um, they pass through the border to uh, to Jarden and a bunch of people are like knocking on their windows and other members of like probably the fire department or something are like, we can't keep doing this to Isaac. Maybe he's not like a bad person. We don't have to keep beating him up. And you have this moment where because you're following Kevin, you're, you, you, you can empathize with realizing that you're in the car with the bad guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're in the car with the guy who's like doing it and other people are like, no, you should stop. And he's like, I'm doing it. And that's where you are, and that sucks. Right, um, right. Because they go to Isaac's house, and he played. Uh, John does a little trick with Kevin, where he's like, "Oh, he's over there. If you really want to talk for him instead of me, because I'm gonna beat him with a baseball bat, and you want to talk to him like a cop, which is clearly more level level headed, then go over <laughs> there and talk <laughs> to him. It's mm-hmm. a misdirect. Yeah. Take him to the wrong place. He goes in. He does, attacks uh, Isaac with a bat. Yeah. Kevin has to stop him. Why does Isaac back shoots for him? him? Yes, huh? Isaac shoots John. Why does yeah. why does John go back for Isaac is my question. So it's a subtle thing that they don't draw a lot of attention to. But um, so Kevin had woken up in 
the where the lake was, right? Yep, yep. And he looked into the girl's car. When he did, he left a handprint on the door that he sees that in the next morning. Oh. And we hear that they're going to send that to get processed or whatever. Forensics, yeah. John assumes that the handprint is a symbol, like a calling card from Isaac or something, because that was his thing, is he would read people's handprints. And so he makes some comment about, like, uh, left a handprint, like, I'm going to totally get this guy. And Patty says to Kevin, like, oh, lucky duck, it seems like you framed somebody by accident. You didn't even intend to. Yeah. Uh, And so that's why he goes... To Isaac, because he's got it in his head that Isaac said, like, something bad's going to happen. Now there's a palm print on the door. He must have something to do with this. Yeah. And this time, Isaac is a priest or a religious type with a gun mm-hmm. who shoots John point blank. Yeah. And they have to get out. I I love, love, love the editing and directing here, by the way, because mm-hmm. we're listening to Patty throughout the episode talk to Kevin and, like, tease him and flirt with him and just kind of, like, be a thorn in his side. And in this moment, she said a, a bit that was so funny to me that I was like cracking up laughing that the instant that uh, Isaac shoots John, like the cut from like, you are laughing so hard at, uh, you know, she tells the story of Neil and how like she discovered him not cheating necessarily, but like having another woman like take a shit on him. And he's really into that. And she says, and he never even asked me, I'm going to play the clip here. My husband, Neil, sorry, my ex-husband was engaging in some pretty suspicious texting activity, and then he would leave late at night to go to the office. To the office. That was the best he could do. I mean, put some fucking originality into it, Neil. So I followed him to a motel, just like this one. Sat in the car. I watched while he walked into the room, and I considered turning around and going back home. I was scared, Kevin scared that when I caught him, it'd be over. He would leave me. But I needed to see, to know. So got out of my car, walked over to the room, and I took a peek. There was Neil, buck naked, and some woman. She had her shirt on. That was it. She was taking a shit on him, Kevin. A shit. I was married to that asshole for 17 years and never once did he ask me to shit on him. It's just, it's so funny. It's so funny because of the way that, uh, that actress like delivers it and right, like instant snap fingers. We're cutting to a man getting shot and you're like, ah, I'm so disoriented. And you feel like Kevin right there. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Incredible work. The, the other thing from a dialogue perspective, that's really brilliant about that is as Patty was telling that story, I was thinking, okay, wow, this Patty is saying information that Kevin wouldn't know. So this must be Patty. Like if we have some doubt in our minds of is he seeing her there or is this like really her spirit haunting him or something? She's giving this information that only she would know. But then she, as she's talking about it, kind of wonders aloud I wonder if Lori ever told you about this. I wonder if like doctor patient confidentiality or therapist patient confidentiality would have extended that far or if she would have told you, Mm -hmm. which has us wondering 
wait a minute. Okay, then maybe this is a Patty that's in his head and is not really Patty. If he had heard this story from Lori before, you know what I'm saying? I do. So it like introduces, it like makes you think that there's a clear answer and then it introduces ambiguity into the situation again in a way that I thought was like really interesting and well done. That's a, that's a really good catch, actually. Thank you. And you mentioned uh, pre-pod that this also ties back to uh, the bag Patty. of shit that yeah that she left outside his tour. Yeah, love that. I love that little loops around. I love when the leftovers does that shit. Damn. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So this is all just really intense. Um, it then leads into John and uh, Kevin going to Erica's practice because he doesn't want to go to a doctor like a, or a you know the the hospital. Uh, and you just get again the sense that they've done this before, and she's like, "Yep, a bullet. Okay, here we go." And like pulls this bullet out of him in a really gruesome little shot of her literally, like tweezering it out. Um, there's a little bit of comedy where she's like, uh, "I have to knock you out." He's like, "No, don't knock me out." And then she does, and he's like, "She goes, okay." And then she proceeds to actually do it. Is that what was <laughs> yeah. happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, "Okay," <laughs> and he's like, uh, "She knocked, she me, knocked out. me out." <laughs> Kevin is so confused here if he should be laughing or confused or scared. Right. Because he, on his perspective, it's like, why did you shoot that guy? Why did that guy shoot you? What's going on with Isaac? What do you think is happening? And this yeah. all ties into Kevin explaining to, uh, to, I'm sorry, John explaining to Kevin on the way there that like all these people come to Miracle thinking that it's better here. It is not better here. Mm. They're like so excited that the water drained because they can come here and get free water from the bottom of the, the lake. But it's water. They're drinking lake water. They're gonna get sick. Like this is stupid. We're a, we're not a safe town. We're not the, like. Why did you guys come here? He's kind of flipping it on Kevin. Um, you guys clearly paid three million dollars on a shit house, six million, whatever. Uh, to to be somewhere that you felt was safe, and it's not. People die here. People disappear, and this is where you start getting the anxiety of this episode. That is like, was there a second departure, and did it finally happen? A miracle. What's yeah. going on with that? Yeah. Um, but really good stuff. This also is intercut or, or comes right after uh, the, just the Nora and Jill drinking on the porch and venting with each other scene, um, right. which I loved. Uh, and I do love the line. The sudden departure was the greatest alibi in the history of civilization because uh-huh. she talks about how like her job in insurance meant that she had to occasionally deal with, quote, secondary departures. So people who claim that they were they had people in their family who departed. And some people lie about that. And some people uh, left their families during the departure because they that's, again, the best alibi ever. Um, yeah. Or like left them after the departure, pretending that a, a second departure had happened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Pretty dark. Pretty yeah. fucked up. Super dark. I love the delivery of I found that fucker in Puerto Rico. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty it's like line. the guy from Perfect Strangers that they found in, uh, I think, in Mexico. Right, right, that's right. I I would never be able to pay this much attention to all these different details if we weren't podcasting about it. So I really yes. am getting a getting a lot out of this. Yeah, it's a very very detailed show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get some emotional scenes here towards the bottom. Nora comes to Matt's home in the church because she's worried about, you know, is miracle real? Is uh this place safe? And uh, she asks him, "Is this place real?" And he drops a nuclear bombshell which is that the first day that they came to miracle mary woke up in the middle of the night and spoke to him all night until they fell asleep and when they woke up the next day 
she was back to being comatose. Oh my god. I remembered this plot because it's such it's so incredible. Uh first question. Do you believe Matt? Um <laughs> <laughs> Don't you want to? Don't doesn't it feel comforting to believe yeah. that? That, my friend, is the power of religion. Matt basically I, just gave her like a, a fable, you know? Just gave her like right. a or like a right. Bible passage of like, and like right. isn't it amazing? She came back. I couldn't show you, but she did. And you mm. want to believe him because he's a because Chris Treckelson's a god tier actor. Mm-hmm. The nice thing is the next episode is like a Matt episode. So, oh yeah, no room we'll, at the end. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so we'll maybe get some more exploration of that. But uh, I don't know. It still doesn't answer for me the question of like, how did he find out of this about this place? Why did he come here? why would he expect something like that to happen here? You know? Yeah. So still some unanswered questions. I'm willing to believe that it happened because like you said, it's fun too, but you know, Matt Jameson, I don't know. I don't know if I trust this guy. or not. He's, he's done a lot of good and bad things for good and bad reasons. Like everyone, he's human. Um, but I love also yeah. just Nora hugging him, just the deep hug of like, Oh, thank you. She's in a church being like she's basically having like a a freaking religious service here you know they're telling her a miracle happened and she's believing it and it's giving her like comfort so she's she's getting this like beautiful little religious experience uh via matt and i like that a lot um i i get but i too yeah i really want mary to have woken up and then have like just the idea of them having a beautiful little conversation and like that like laughing and kissing and all that and then he wakes up the next day and it's like oops not anymore yeah yeah um, going back though, one quick thing we learned that that ties into the end of the episode. Uh, the government came by every house in Miracle to confirm that nobody departed, and they left orange signs on each person's door, uh, that say like confirmed or something or you know clear. Um, Michael tells Jill this to be like, huh, you know that's a weird thing. She's like, why do you guys have these signs? And he's like, yeah, it's because they like they needed a systemic way to confirm it. Um, we also learned a little bit of backstory, like how Evie was born several months early. So she's a miracle child making us think more about what's going on with Evie. She was like a difficult birth. Um, and then one more bombshell, just one more quick. Well, I guess two. if you consider Michael removing the poster at the end, because now he thinks that Evie's departed, that's a bombshell. But the real final bombshell is that Patty reveals what we all could have guessed that the reason that Kevin went into the water uh, was not because he was just daydreaming about nothing or that he wanted to get a drink, but because he wanted to die. Um, you know, he's talked about or he said, like, I'm not I'm OK now. I have Nora. I have Jill. Things are good. Uh, clearly not because he tied a cinder block to his leg and put himself in the lake. And the only reason he survived was because of a miracle. Huh. Kevin hmm. might have Kevin might have special luck powers, it seems. Patty also says that the girls departed. Yeah, she's like, it's what you think it is. Which is what Michael thinks happened, too. Yeah, that's why he removes the sign at the end. Mm -hmm. Verified, that's what it says. Um, Kevin tells Nora, he like sits in bed with her and has these handcuffs. This is so sexy. (laughs) Stop it. I'll stop it, I'll (laughs) stop it. But they put the handcuffs on each other, and again, it's like, this is... I'm horny for you, but I also don't want you to run away again. And I want to be attached to the person I love, you know? So there's something tender about it. 
But right as they're going to sleep, you think the episode's going to end on that. And she whispers, Kevin, do you think the girls are going to come back? And he goes, I don't. I don't think so. Oh, Michelle, what happened to the girls? Can you just can you just tell me what happened to the girls? What's he, can... They got they got departed somehow. That sucks, dude. Ugh. Okay. Well, I hope nobody yeah. else gets departed. What if there's just like every every season there's a departure? And it's a various different number of people. <laughs> that would suck. It'd be really That'd bad. Be bad. And then uh Jill wakes up and sees Michael doing the thing. That's the episode. Mm-hmm. It's great. Mm-hmm. I like this episode. I I thought some of the Michael John stuff was like getting a little boring when it's just like we're driving around and we're threatening being threatening to each other. But getting to Isaac and then everything after that, I was like fully on board with this episode. So mm-hmm. I came around on orange sticker. Um, I have a quick stray note that's important to note. Speaking of noting, noting notes. Um, did you catch the shot of Erica, John's wife, um, adjusting her hearing aid? No. So Erica is uh, hearing impaired. She's a, she's playing it. Regina King's playing a disabled character. So she did a lot of interviews at the time about this and how she like she she has a quote about like I didn't know how to play it and I realized that there were tons of crew on the show who were uh you know who were hearing impaired and hmm. I didn't even think about it and so it just became this like unconscious thing that they live with and I had to ask them questions about like what do you like how do certain things sound the only reason I bring that up is one it's it's a character detail and two um Erica still heard the cricket uh in season two episode one Hmm. we didn't i don't know if she had her hearing aid in during that scene so that's weird Hmm. interesting many mysteries many mysteries do you have any straight notes john drinks a beer in the car i thought you didn't drink my daughter's missing Uh, i love that line i noted that too yeah uh i love justin throws so good at making a bewildered face we we live back there. <laughs> what? What's happening? John has to be like, he's my neighbor. It's okay. He's like, where do I live? I don't know what my address is. <laughs> also, Isaac's saying, um, right, but after he shoots John, he says, ain't nothing more dangerous than a man who don't believe in nothing. This is the season about atheists being scary. <laughs> I don't actually think that's <laughs> what it is, but yeah. That's what we got. Uh, I think that brings the orange the sticker to a close let's take a peek forward into what we're watching next week on the chats over yeah let's do it next week we are watching season two episode five no room at the inn matt takes his wife outside a miracle to seek answers about her condition but he struggles to keep her safe from desperate tourists outside the town's gates it's a mad episode you're gonna love it it's great um next up is lens season two episode six Nora is irritated by unexpected visitors. Kevin's predicament becomes impossible to ignore, and Erica finds an unlikely ally and reveals haunting secrets. Exciting. Hmm. Very exciting. Um, yeah. Did you want to tell me, Majel, what you uh, have going on on the internet these days? Do you want to plug? Surely. I'm on another podcast once a month called Super Smash Echoes. It's a video game podcast. It's sort of a video game book club. That I host with my friend Justin, where we play games that are related to Super Smash Brothers in some way, and it's a fun time. Check it out. Super Smash Echoes. Alan, what about you? I do two other podcasts primarily. One of them is the Hunter's Quorum, which is where my friends Six and Casey, a.k.a. Manofsky, 
um, talking about the Monsters of the Monster Hunter video game franchise, and we have a fun gag of a time there. It's a little comedy rating podcast. Um, I'm also the director of content for the American Marketing Association in Boston, and that means that I'm the primary host and producer of their Talking Marketing podcast, which is a one-on-one look into, it's an interview conversation series with different marketing experts in the industries and uh, just kind of like demystifying their craft. So if you care about marketing at all, or you're into that sort of thing, you want to hear my voice on a very different podcast, then check out Talking Marketing wherever you listen to those. Um, That's what we have. I will hit us with a plug zone if you don't mind. Do it. Bokey dokey. If you'd like to email us questions, comments, or concerns, please hit up chatspod at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-T-Z-P-O-D. We're also at chatspod on Twitter. We have a subreddit, which is rchatspod. And we are on all the major podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And we would really appreciate a rating or a review. For reals, guys, just take a second. If you haven't reviewed a podcast this week, maybe just go ahead and hit, hit it with a couple stars. Maybe write a little review. That really helps us. If you have the money, and we really appreciate that if you're able to, we have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash chatspod, where we have all sorts of bonus content for $1, $3, and $5 monthly tiers. A uh, dollar a month gets you a light library of podcasts, including Magellan's Solo X-Files show. $3 gets you our entire backlog of shows, uh, including our commentaries over where we talk over movies uh, like Holes. <laughs> and uh, $5 gets you all of those things, plus a thank you at the end of every main feed episode of Chats. Those $5 tier patrons today include Arthur, Chloe, Jen, Kat, Lee, Magellan's mom, Marcus, Marin, Michael, Nick and Pat of the Brothers at Infinite War, Fenden, Six, and Stefan. Thank you all for supporting Chats. All things Chatspot can be found at chatspot.com. Our podcast art was done by Camilla. She can be found at Camilla Strader on all the social media platforms. And that is what we have for the show. We like to end things by doing a segment called Chatsums, where we recommend something for the listener to enjoy between now and the next episode of Chats. Uh, I'll go first. Usually when I do the outro, I make you go first. But I want to go first this time, Angel, if that's okay. Um, I'm okay with it. Thank you. I'm going to talk about a movie that I watched. I was having a rough, not a rough Saturday, but just like an, a kind of like indoorsy, quiet Saturday, you know? And, uh, you know, I've chat some to the Austin Danger podcast before, which is a podcast where Kevin McKenzie, two film buffs, uh, watch movies that are in any way cast or crew related to the Austin Powers films. And uh, they recently watched 2000's Charlie's Angels uh, with Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and Lucy Liu. Uh, and I had never seen that movie because I was, uh, you know, there's just such a huge swath of incredible films that I didn't watch because they were too girl, quote unquote, too girly for me. Um, funny considering that I watched Princess Diaries like 10 times as a kid. So I have a lot of questions about that. But no, Charlie's Angels, guys, the movie holds up so well. It's so dope. It's funny. It's empowering to women it's also wildly sexist at the same exact time so somehow bill murray's in it inexplicably uh lucy Liu is the most beautiful person alive i can't i just have to say that um it's dope and even and there's like a lot of funny parts in it uh they go to soul train for a date at one point and cameron diaz gets made fun of for having a small butt it's really weird and it really perked up my weekend and i, I if you haven't seen the Charlie's Angels 2000, not the one from 2019 with Kristen Stewart. I've heard that one's kind of bad. The OG 2001. And I've heard Charlie's Angels Full Throttle is also very good. I'm going to check that out at some point, but that's my chat song. Jean, what about you?
By chance, there's a TV show on HBO Max. Listen, I'm a fan of Nathan Fielder. I'm a fan of Nathan for you. And the the good the good guy has come on back to TV and he's done a whole new show called The Rehearsal, where he helps people, as he does, by helping them to rehearse for life moments. Uh and in true Nathan Fielder fashion, he just goes whole hog doing that. And it's a lot. He spends if you can imagine this, there's a guy, the first episode is this guy who wants to admit to a member of his bar trivia team that he's been lying for a decade about having a master's degree. And <laughs> the episode is 45 minutes long, and it's oh, no. all about rehearsing and preparing the guy for that. So, yeah. Um, it's great. The rehearsal's great. That's my recommendation. I, I need to check it out, especially because... It's that first time you get to watch a Nathan Fielder show as it's coming out, and so the memes are happening in real time. I've already seen people talk about Thrifty Boy from that episode. <laughs> Thrifty Boy's great, yeah. Um, so I have to, I have to watch him. And don't show me an episode of a Nathan for you just to reintroduce me to the vibe of a Nathan Fielder show. And um, yeah. it's an acquired taste. If you don't like feeling <laughs> deeply uncomfortable, then yeah, it's not for you. It's Sorry to say, it's Nathan for you, but it's not for you. It's yeah. not thin for you. Not. Thin. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I dug it. I really want to check out that show, um, the the proposal, the proposal, the, the rehearsal. rehearsal, the rehearsal. I want to check out the rehearsal. It's on HBO. Thank you, Magellan. In general, for being the smudge on my car door to my Lori Garvey, I just can't get rid of you. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, dear listener, for listening to the chats over us where nobody disappeared. And nothing happened. Goodbye. Bye.